Greetings, everybody. This is a Travel Addict podcast where you can hear candid stories and discussions about business and adventure travel from around the world with activities such as trekking, diving, camping, driving, cruising, and just plain chilling out somewhere. We talk about lots of experiences in places all over the world, including the grand, the remote, the edgy, the risque, and ones of questionable merit. Education, fulfillment, and wonder enrich our lives. And of all the books in the world, the best stories are found between the pages of a passport. Stay tuned. Well, good morning, everybody. The Travel Addict here, Malcolm Teasdale. And with me this morning is a critically acclaimed stand-up comedian from the land down under, yes, Australia, who now lives in London, England. Now, just based on the fact he was born in Australia and now lives in London, (laughs) there has to be some sort of weird, strange sense of humor there. So I would imagine he's done well standing up in front of people and telling them, telling people stories. I I can just imagine. We may hear a few today. So stick around, folks. Fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. Good morning, Anthony. Good morning, Malcolm. Thanks for having me. It is a cruel trick, actually, because we, we discussed a bit before this that that you know the the move is is a like not always the most common one to leave somewhere sunny and friendly to somewhere grey and a bit more miserable. But the main reason was to travel <laughs> and and three years into my my uh, you know jet setting across Europe, uh, a lot of friends I think got very jealous of the amount of traveling I was doing and prayed very hard. And I think the side effects of how I was stopped from hitting the road are um, affecting everybody today because now none of us can do it. Obviously, we've been locked down a bit. I've I've, I've been vaccinated, by the way, so I'm going to be hitting the road next month, uh, which is good. You guys will eventually, my sister still lives over there in the the Cotswolds. You're familiar with that area? And uh, she's just been uh, vaccinated. So take a bit of time. But anyway, now, because you, and I checked out a couple of your YouTubes, actually, briefly, not in in their entirety, but I get the gist (laughs) of your your shows here. Pretty well raw, uncensored stuff. Now, you said you made a name in. Now, I've got to ask you this question. In the UK, I think Scotland and Sweden. Now, yes. All right. So I'm going to ask you, this is, this is going to involve cultural differences within countries, Sam. I don't know yeah. if you do your homework before you get on stage and start talking about local life or whatever. Now, go to Scotland. Did you learn a bit about the Scottish people before you went there, or even the English for that matter, or just you just get up and just mouth off, so to speak? <laughs> so I think with Scotland, I've always performed during Fringe, so it's a kind of cross-cultural audience anyway because you know most of the people at fringe aren't the aren't the locals they tend to to try and rent out their apartment at exorbitant rates to performers and enjoy a, a somewhere a bit more quiet in august when fringe comes to town so with scotland i didn't i did have the uh strange cross-cultural experience of sharing the first time I did fringe I shared a bill with a Glaswegian and it was my first uh first uh foray into to actually really speaking a lot with one of them and we 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 shared a run for 12 nights where I'd do 20 minutes he'd do 20 minutes oh cool yeah um and by the end of that run 
I still don't reckon I understood half of what he said. I heard him say it 12 <laughs> nights in a row, but um, couldn't for the life of you tell, tell you what he said. <laughs> I think the further north you go in Scotland, the more incomprehensible they become. And that's just my yeah. theory about things. And I'll tell you this one because, you know, in Scotland, I, I love Scotland and I like the people as well, but I was fortunate enough to play the old course in uh, St. Andrews there. And with me was a guy from Boston and those two Swedish gentlemen. The Swedish guys had two Scottish caddies with them. I didn't want a caddy, but you can imagine me being an Englishman and two Scottish caddies there, the uh, the banter, right? Yes, and, yes. And, the, and one of the Swedish guys got a hold of these. And he, it was probably later on in the round. And he said in his Swedish accent, said to the, the Scottish caddy, he said, hey, you know what the difference is between a Scotchman and a coconut? And of course, the Scotchman saw his hands. He said, you can get a drink out of a coconut. <laughs> and I, I almost got lost it right there, but they took it in. They, they, they took yeah. it well, and it was just, it was, it was funny. Anyway, I just uh, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. No, so performing in Sweden was really bizarre because I, I guess what had happened was I was doing a bit of a holiday with um, a, a group holiday with friends, and as uh, young Aussies in Europe, we tend to book quite long holidays because it yeah. takes a while to get there. Um, so uh, doing six weeks and uh, as a young person traveling with friends for the first time, you kind of realize six weeks with the same group of people is a bit much. So I decided I wanted to break away from my group and I, I, I kind of didn't know what to do. I was like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll book in some gigs. Um, and I tried to find places where I could book a gig and I also wanted to see. So I, I spent, yeah. th this is my first foray into performing okay. in Sweden. Sure. So, so I, I kind of booked the shows while I was on holiday as I decided to, and, and that's why I went to Sweden. To, to book so, the shows while you're away, hoping you could do the shows while you're away. Is that like? Yeah, well, yeah. So I was already in Europe and I was like, actually, how, what, what can I do to find an excuse to leave these people who are doing my head in? I'll say I've booked some shows, getting some money. And uh, so I sent out some messages like, hey, you know, here, here's my CV. Here's some clips of what I do. Um, if you've got any paid work in the next month, I'm in Europe. Let me know. They got back to me. They had an opening um, for, for sort of a week's worth of gigs. So I told my friends, hey, sorry, I've managed to book some gigs, so I'm, 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 I'm away. So um, because that all happened in such a rushed manner, I never even stopped to consider, like, what are the cultural differences? What are the language differences? Yeah. Anything, right? And so I, I am uh, three weeks into this six-week trip, you know, smelly backpacker, arrive in Sweden at like 4 p.m., have to be on stage at 7, kind of straight straight off the plane into the venue. And uh, it only just hit me what I'd signed up for when the MC gets on and he's speaking Swedish, he's not speaking English. And then the first act is speaking Swedish and not English. And I, I'm on last, I'm headliner, so I'm supposed to be like the big finishing act. <laughs> and by the time I get on stage... Not a word of English has been spoken, not even introducing me, because I had backstage at least thought, oh, you know, what he'll do is he'll he'll get right to me and then he'll he'll say, hey, this next act is English speaking. So, you know, and, yeah. and, and at least so I know how he's introducing me. Like he introduced me in Swedish. He could have said this guy thinks he's a big shot, booked a gig a week ago, and now he's going to speak English at you for all I know. Um, so, yeah, got on stage and... At the time I started telling my first joke, it really dawned upon me 
that I have no idea how literate they're going to be in English, really. I didn't bother to do that research. And B, I have no idea what the hell they were laughing at in the lead up. Like their sense of humor could be so bizarre. So it was one of those things of like, I guess I've never gone skydiving, but I imagine it's that same experience where you go, I hope this thing works. Like you just really, um, and as it turns out, it was, it was, uh, the show went fantastic. It was really great. Their sense of humor, as you kind of just mentioned, really good, quite similar. The one thing that I found was, was interesting was that, you know, that, that, incredibly sexually progressive culture so so that kind of humor no no problems the yep. minute you started talking about uh drugs and alcohol though it's a completely different attitude and mood i think over there really wow yeah they yeah. they're pretty laid back it doesn't surprise me that my experience in in sweden everyone spoke english and quite well they, yeah. they have to speak english because no one would really want to speak swedish it's a bit like Dutch, isn't it? You know, no one speaks Dutch apart from the Dutch, you know. And I, I get that, and maybe the same with the other Scandinavian countries. So you, you spent time in the Visby? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where is that relative to Stockholm? Uh, I So I caught, it, it, it was, again, a, a lot of firsts. It, it was the first time I ever had to get on a light plane. Um, so it was like I caught a... Um, I think it was a six-person aircraft sort of 30 minutes from Stockholm over oh. to the, the Gotland Islands um, where they are. Yeah. Um, and and you go, ah, uh, and you kind of, yeah, no big deal. Turbulence in a light aircraft is a different experience, oh, yeah, right? Because yeah. <laughs> on, on a plane, you go, oh, yeah, this is a big thing. It can, it can handle this shaking. Yeah. It feels a bit like being on a bus on a really bumpy road. On a... Um, Light aircraft, turbulence feels like you are a toy in the hand of a monster being shaken violently. (laughs) I I was not sure that my insides were all where they were to begin with after that ride. Um, But, yeah, so so it's 30 minutes on on, on a light aircraft uh, to to Visby and... (laughs) I, I struck it really lucky, right? Because apparently I, I, I've done a lot of research since because I fell in love with it. And apparently Visby is a, a city that a lot of Stockholm people own their summer house at. Yeah. And so in August it is rammed with Stockholm people yeah, who... exactly, to get out of the city. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, and, and, and it is kind of on the coast there. So it's it's got a, I, I think... I don't, maybe as an Australian, I'm a snob when it comes to beaches, but I think the closest thing Sweden gets to a beach, although um, it's got a nice little coastal view and a really, like, uh, really serene sort of feeling city. But I went at the first week of of, um, September and quite literally you could walk right through. the, The city's got, like, these old kind of, it feels like Viking walls, yeah. stone walls around it. And I walked from one end of the wall to the other and and you didn't see a person, you didn't see a car. It almost felt like you had this beautiful landscape with all these ruins and yeah. this kind of Viking architecture, but almost all to yourself. Yeah. It is re- really fantastic. Pretty much all, all spoiled, you know. And I remember going to Stockholm. I've been to Stockholm a couple of times. I like the old city there, but... The last time I went there, I was in the ship that had cruised in through the Stockholm archipelago. It's unbelievable, 
beautiful scenery and people live it's quite wealthy environment people live on these little small islands scattered around this beautiful untouched unspoiled and um it, it's wonderful i have to go back there one of these days now okay you went to sweden but you also mentioned in your profile that you went to nelim now this is did i pronounce that right n-e-l-i-m yeah. Yeah, Nelim. Yeah, in uh, in the the Laplands. Yeah, that's right. Northern Finland, right? Yeah, yeah, on the border of Finland and Russia, pretty much, and 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 also close to the Norwegian border. Yeah, yeah. That must have been quite an experience. I mean, it's quite obviously you didn't go in the depths of winter, did you? Oh yeah, we did. We were there over Christmas and New Year's. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh. Yeah, it was it was absolutely absolutely freezing. Um and as somebody like I struggle with UK winter which is barely gets below zero and um when we were there I think we had days of, you know, minus 32, minus 34. Yeah. It is it is um significantly the coldest I've ever been. Um and you know it, it's one of those those cities where the sunlight never really gets above the horizon. Um, it's not quite perpetual yep. darkness, but it feels like it. Um, but yeah, we we were there on kind of one of these uh, quite fancy, uh, you know, see the northern lights resorts because yep. Nalim is one of these places that that you get quite good opportunities to see the northern lights. Um, but so you're in the middle of nowhere. All your meals and stuff have to be provided by the resort because, uh, yeah. because how? But but then what they were quite good at doing was employing local people to take you out to like this is the local church and this is what people yeah. have to do to go get it. Yeah. Um, and like the, the local industry. So so I think a lot of people. I mean, I say a lot of people. There's not a lot of people in the limb. Let's be honest. But there's a lot of the industry is around the deer farming. So they tell you all about how, how these reindeer farmers operate. And um, it is, it is fascinating stuff, right? Cause like yeah. apparently the deer in, in the limb, which is again, it's their primary source of income for a lot of these people, um, but they're, they're semi wild. So like the owners own them and they tag them, but then they let them go. And then they kind of just have an honesty policy that you don't take somebody else's, Deer, um, it's just a really weird, weird system that you know you wouldn't get a, a lot of places. Yeah, it's um, you know, Finland, I think, for the third time now, third time in three years, of course, it, Finland has been named the happiest, best country on the planet, and there's yeah. reasons for that, right? The, the people are happy there. I, you know, I spent some time in Helsinki, and they go out in the countryside, the countryside is pristine. It's like totally unspoiled. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. The people just are happy. They're also the biggest coffee drinkers in the world. I didn't know that. Do you find that? Yeah. yeah. It's just, all these little yeah. quirky things you find out when you go to these places. But, yeah, it's great. City. Too I mean, cold for me, though. Too cold. And- I, I was going to say, I, I, the coffee makes sense because of how cold it is. I, I, I did go through Helsinki um, on, on the way in and out and spent a couple of days either side. And yeah. I will say um, – You'd want to be a very happy person living in Finland because the price of a beer is absolutely outrageous. You wouldn't want to have a miserable day and just feel like a cold, hard pint because you'd be broke pretty quick. <laughs> absolutely. Anyway, hey, you went to a place that uh, the I like, and not many people think going there is Russia. I've been to St. Petersburg, great city, but I've also been to Moscow. 
Now, yeah. what happened to you in Moscow? Tell me you had a little bit of an <laughs> escapade there. I got to hear about this because I got my own story um, in Moscow, but I want to hear it from what, what happened to you there. Uh, so so I, I was traveling through Russia um, mainly kind of during and just before the World Cup. So places in the hotels and hostels were, were quite competitive. Yeah. And as a, as a result, I did what any frugal person did and catch a lot of red eyes in between my um in between my cities. And what I didn't realize is that Russia has a bit of a wild, wild west um, approach to customer service. And so I, I knew I was arriving at Moscow at 2 a.m. I'd be checking in at 3 a.m. So the two things I did was I made sure that I, I checked that the hotel had a 24-hour reception. They did. And that they knew I was arriving at 3 a.m.-ish yeah. to their place. And they they responded, yes, cool, it's fine. So off the back of, of a plane from Kazan, probably two and a bit hour flight, phone battery, like had to book the taxi. So phone battery starting to, to dwindle as I get to the, the hotel. And it turned out that uh, the hotel was one of these kind of uh, hostel hotels where some of the rooms were hotel rooms, some were hostel for like emergency sleep. And so at the front of the, the, the hotel hostel uh, that I'm arriving at is just a bunch of burly Russian lads standing over a fire, drunk off their head. So that was the, the welcome wagon. I thought, oh, this is going to be an interesting stay, but I'm up for it, bit of atmosphere all about it. And then I get to the door and it says, sorry, we're sold out for the night. Um, no, it didn't even say that. They were just laughing at me because I've got my uh, my backpack and they know yeah. I'm arriving. Yep. So they, they, I just see these big, burly Russian people laughing and there is a sign in Russian on the door. So I'm like, oh, I, I guess I just have to, to ring the bell and yeah. I've told them I'm coming. And uh, the lady opens the locked door and says, no, we're full. And I tried to show her my email that said I'm coming at three. Oh, so she, Lord. And, she, and she shuts the door in my face and they're all laughing at me and my phone battery is dying. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to frantically Google another hotel with a 24 hour reception yeah. that has a last minute booking during the World Cup in Russia. <laughs> and so everything I'm seeing is like oh, 750 quid a night. And I, I don't have, I'm, so I'm going, I, literally what I'm starting to do as I watch my phone battery die is go, I wonder how long, like, is the Metro 24 hours? Could I just ride the train till tomorrow morning? Um and as that's going on and going through my head, uh, a guy who must have heard what happened from the hostel come out, he spoke yeah. English. He was Russian, but he spoke English. And he was like, yeah, that sign says they're full. Um, they've obviously just sold your room to somebody for more money than you were going to pay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you probably got a refund, but, you know, what are we going to do tonight? Or what are you going to do tonight? And I said, oh, my phone battery's dying. I'm just... And so... He was really good. Like he, he he charged my phone. He found a place. He's like, oh, you can't book on oh, a tourist site yeah. because, yeah, exactly. You can't book on a tourist site because, um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're absolutely going to be ripping you off. It's the World Cup, da da da. And so then found found a place on a local site and booked. And then 
booked the booked the cab and he's like, oh, look, because they will charge you more money for being a tourist, I'll go and check you in because then I can speak Russian and they yeah. don't have to know you're a tourist. They'll think we're, we're traveling together. And I get into the taxi and about halfway through, I'm like, oh, man, but I've seen documentaries that end with me and my organs on the black market. Like I've just, I've got, no, I've told this guy I've got no phone battery, not much money, and I'm homeless for the nine minutes ago and now we're in a taxi together that he has booked. I have not seen where he's booked it to. I've been in the city for 45 minutes. I've got no idea about where where I should and should not be. And I just thought, oh, this is this is either going to be the greatest help anyone has ever been out of the kindness of their heart to me, or my organs are on tomorrow's black market menu. That's the way the story is. There's a funny how things go through through your mind in times like that. Yeah, I got lost in Moscow myself. Someone gave me a ticket for a, a Russian play. I don't know why I went, but I, they convinced me to go. But it was in out of the city center, and the seat I was given was a front row seat. The theater was full, but the play was nonsense. I couldn't understand it. It was actually quite sort of risque, if you know. I got to get out of here. So I left and went outside and I tried to get a taxi back to, to my hotel. And of course, there weren't any to be had and it was snowing. This was December, by the way. I eventually got one because the taxi was dropping someone off. I flagged them down. And my problem when I got into the taxi, where am I going to? How do I pronounce my hotel? And no one spoke English there. So I just said, Kremlin, you understood that. That's where I got dropped off that night. And I thought, well, I've got to be a hotel close by the Kremlin. I can go to that hotel before taking me to my real hotel. And it worked out in the end, but it was a bit scary, you know? Yeah. yeah. And this yeah, was yeah. during the time when the Soviet Union was coming to an end. So yeah. you all survive at the end of the day, but there are times when we think, well, we prob- I've probably bitten off more than I can chew here, but. <laughs> <laughs> but Anthony, if we can always look back and laugh on these little escapades or instances. <laughs> that's the main thing, right? It's always absolutely okay. So you've performed performed in five countries, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, excellent. Now we talked about sense of humor around the world, and it does yeah. vary, of course. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, I know. I I remember landing in Sydney Airport once. I had my England rugby shirt on, and the immigration officer just said to me, he said. You got a nerve coming in here like that, mate. And he just laughed yeah. and waved me on, you know. But, yeah. but, but it was cool. But that's that friendly camaraderie between the uh, uh, Australians and the Br- British, um, mainly around sport, cricket and rugby, I guess. But but you've noticed that, though, on your travels to performing clubs at different places around the world, at Scotland and England, you notice a different sense of humour. And some people may be accepting to it, others may not be. So... I just wondered which other places uh, that you've been to or done your uh, comedy show where anything goes, basically. The crowd are just there, tell us anything. We'll love it. Yeah, I I definitely think that that Scotland is pretty good for that, right? Um, And particularly, I mean, particularly during Fringe, the the absolute... uh, Because I was... So I'm quite a storytelling comedian, but... I was on a midnight, like my show started at midnight. So I was getting the absolutely roasted Scots um, and, and tourists jumping in. So, So that was a very anything goes. I mean, the Scots as well tend to be a bit more interactive than than a lot of audience because they are a funny people and they want you to know that they're funny too. Um, exactly, yeah. 
no problem with that at all. Yeah. And then, yeah, I, I, I find regardless of country, I find the further you get out of the cities, the, the kind of more they will accept, but then also the boardier they want you to push it um, is, is a general rule. Yeah. Um, so, so it, there's not much difference, you know, traveling a couple of hours outside of, of Melbourne to a country town uh, in Australia than there is. Like I performed in Morecambe of all places in the yeah. UK and, oh. and it, it, it felt like um, it felt a lot like doing a gig in a country town in, in Australia in terms of what they were up for, what they wanted, how they wanted you to, to treat them. Um because I guess when you go into a country town as well, what 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 the thing you have to do is because the the audience tends to be a lot more communal. There's a lot more community. They know each other a bit better. In in the city, you're, you're performing to lots of groups of twos and threes, mm-hmm. whereas sometimes in a country town, you're you're performing to twenty people where fifteen of them know each other in some way. So all of a sudden, it's more like performing to a school classroom or something. So you have to prove to them quite quickly that you're the funny one because otherwise there are people within the group who will show you, ah, no, oh, this I is see, the kind yeah, of funny we want to. So you have to be a bit more off the bat. You have to give them a bit more and, and, and be a bit more authoritarian on stage in, in some of them. But then weirdly enough, and this is consistent with my, no matter where I perform to um audiences and no matter where I am at my career, I find, strangely enough, the Americans are the hardest people to perform to. I I just, yeah, I just, the snob in me goes, yeah, they just don't get a dry sense of humour. They don't understand. (laughs) That's the snob in me. They're just a bit, they want a bit more boombastic in there. But yeah, that's where I, that's where I've had the most trouble is, is gigs where, where there's bunches of, Americans in the crowd. Yeah, I just wonder because you, not not all uh, British comedians, example, make it big in the United States. Ricky Gervais has in recent, and, and Benny Hill was big, if you remember him way back when. He was big over here. So that was more slapstick stuff. But it is interesting, you know, when you come across all these places and they have a different sense of humour. And funny enough, what what <laughs> going on at midnight I don't know if that makes any difference going on at midnight, but I just remember the wife and I were driving around Scotland. We stopped in at the Loch Ness and we, we, we sort of had a late lunch at a pub. We went into a pub at 4.30 in the afternoon. And I tell you, everyone was drunk as skunks in there <laughs> and dancing around. Yes, yeah, 4.30 in the afternoon. Yeah. And that, anyway, I thought, okay, that's fine. Let's join the fun. Well, we just obviously had lunch and got out of there, but, you know, each to their own. Saying that, and you know this guy, who well, was doing quite well in America, Jim Jeffries, right? Yes, yeah. And what, what's your opinion on on him? I I think Jim is a very interesting character because I think fifty percent of the time he does some of the smartest, most switched on comedy that is going around, and fifty percent of the time he does cheap and easy jokes for lads. You think he adapts to the audience? I don't. I don't know if he cares. Uh, but he did a skit on gun control in America, which is actually brilliant. Um, I yeah. remember, yeah, I, I've watched that a couple of times. I've sent it some to some American friends of mine, and they sort of, you know, look down on the floor. I tend to agree that when I first time looked at Jim Jeffries, I thought, I'm not sure. Then some shows were sort of good and others were, I'm, I'm not sure about this, you know. He does get a bit yeah. risque at times, and that may push the limits, but I don't think he cares. Anyway, he's, he does quite well. No. In 
I think I think you you asked a good question. It's one that I ask myself. I don't I don't obviously I don't assume to talk on anyone else's behalf, but I suspect there is a degree to which he made a name and built an audience in one mode. And then comedy, like anything, it, it, like wine, you you get better over time. And I think his comedy has has, like I said, got to the point where at some times he's one of the funniest, smartest, and most articulate and gut-punchingly funny whilst making incredibly clever points in a way that you you're like, how can you be that funny and that right all at once? It's it's a joy to bold. Yeah, it's excellent. Then, yeah, that is he is good at that. Now your comedy involves such topics as left-wing politics, philosophy, sport. Yeah. When you say sport, obviously cricket's in there because people make fun. Cricket, like the only sport in the world that can last five days and end up in a draw. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous to the average American here. But it does uh, sort of become a target for jokes, I guess, cricket, um, from Brits as well. Uh, like I would make fun of baseball, you know, Baseball yeah. to me is a good cure for for insomnia. However, <laughs> you've got you talk about music, comedy, and your comedy, left wing politics, and uh, and philosophy. So when you talk about sports, I'm assuming it's cricket, uh, rugby as well. Anything else you talk about there? Besides no, do you know what? I I just love sporting culture more than anything. I, like you know what I love is that, and I've been thinking about this this a lot more. Is like sports fans are the original nerds, right? They just love it inside and out. They know every player and their name and their, their backstory. And the, it's like, it's like the original like geekdom is to, to know. And, and I love being a part of that. And so when I talk about sports, it's often around, you know, the, the big cultural moments and what you see happen in sports and, and what that, that means at that time, you know, because I, I do think, I think what's funny is is the things that unite people and the, the the idiosyncrasies within that. And I don't think anything has the scale of that, of, of a, a big sporting event, right? When you, when, when something happens on World Cup final day, you can reference that quite quickly and everybody knows what happened, what it meant. And it gives you, it opens up so much room to talk about, as you said, cross-cultural things like, one of my favorite things is so when I first moved to the UK, I was staying with a, a, a house that was like 50% French people, 50% Aussies. We got along really well. But one of the things that would always be a source of conflict is occasionally some of the Aussies would get under the skins of some of the French people because they didn't get the sarcasm, like that you sarcastically make fun of someone as a term of endearment, right? Yeah. So, like, it, it, if they burnt their dinner and someone was like, Oh, good cooking, mate. Like sarcastically, uh, the, the French people would take that really like, why are you attacking me, right? And so then watching Australia play France at the World Cup and then watching the two sporting cultures try to banter and just neither one getting the other ones, oh, it's so good. Just absolute chaos. Are you talking about football or rugby here in the World Cup? Football, football. Football, yeah. Football. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, dear. I, I can just picture that. Uh, yeah. here's, here's a discussion I've had a few times over here. It's, it's comparing rugby with American football. And you know what okay. I mean by that. Yeah. yeah. And so, which, which is a tougher one. And people make fun of me. Yeah. I'm, I'm from England and I have a few friends that love American football here. He said, just a bunch of babies play soccer, don't they? 
I said, well, it's pretty much like that. You know, it, it is. It's not the way it used to be, unfortunately. So it's been target of laughter of players rolling over that you look yeah. like you or something. And I think yeah. kind of push a Premier League and say, please create the big baby 11. You know who they are. You need to do yeah. this. The discussion revolves around. And I said, yeah, it's pretty much similar to what uh, rugby players and rugby supporters think of American football. And oh, cool. that's that's the start of it there, you know. That, but <laughs> all, next time you're over in the states, think of us starting a discussion about uh, comparison between American football and rugby. It'll it'll be interesting, yeah, because it yeah, can get a could get a bit tense, but you've got to see this funny side of it. Oh, a hundred percent. I I I'm completely with you. Although I I will uh, make a small confession that that is controversial. So Melbourne is an AFL state, so that weird hybrid, stolen rules from every other game sort of sport. We don't really play rugby. We play Australian rules football. Yes. So um, so, so um, even for me, like I actually had this discussion with my wife the other day because it was a, a nice day and we were on the walk and I was like, oh, it'd be good to, to have a kick of the footy. And she's like, oh, don't any of your, your English friends, like wouldn't they? And I was like, no, they don't get it. They don't understand. And she's like, oh, well, can't you play rugby with them? And I was like, no, because when you kick the footy, you're like 50 metres away from each other and you just kick it straight and you have a chat, but you're looking at each other and that's a brilliant bang. You booted, it goes, that's great. Playing rugby, you stand side by side and you're just, it's just a bit, it's, it's, oh, how are you today? It's just not, it's not the same experience. <laughs> and then gridiron, that's a complete different thing because then you've got to wear the helmets and the, oh, it's a whole ordeal. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, exactly. And, of course, cricket's a whole different ball game, of course, and trying to explain cricket to uh, Americans is just impossible. I run a two-week course, I tell them, on the rules of cricket, but I do have a two-minute version, <laughs> by the way. It's worth knowing. So if you ever invite me onto your show, I'll, I'll give everyone a two-minute <laughs> version of the rules of cricket. Moving on, dating uh, you talk about dating. Of course, you're, you're married right now, but you went through time when you were dating. There was some escapades there. You don't really have to elaborate on it, but um, but feel free to talk about your your dating. I wanted to say expertise, but it may be lack of expertise. What 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 what, what, what the hell is going on there? <laughs> so I'll give you I'll give you the kind of two minute elevator pitch version of it. I spent my whole twenties in one relationship that I knew for the 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 whole back end of it, that it wasn't right. And it took me moving to the UK to be the catalyst for me. Like, well, do you know what? I actually don't want to make this move with you, right? And it was a it was a difficult breakup. And so then I, I spent kind of a year single and then I moved to the UK and I had the genius idea that is, it's kind of genius on paper, idiot in practice, where I was going to move in September straight after summer so that I, I got to enjoy Australian summer and I got to um, save up. And then my idea was that I'd move to the UK and then spend the winter making friends so that when summer come around, great friends, perfect plan, right? Yeah. Except what I didn't realise is just how much the country goes into hibernation in winter at times <laughs> yeah, yeah. and just how difficult that would make making friends when I landed, particularly in those first couple of months. Um, and so what I ended up having to do is to fill my calendar for the early, early couple of months 
was go on dates because it's so much easier to get on an app and go, yeah, let, let, let's go on a date, get a drink. And it gave me a reason to leave the house and see the city and go to wonderful bars and restaurants. But um, may have dived into that a bit too much because ended up going on 52 first dates in nine months. Incredible. But you met a girl who you call her a doomsday prepper. Um, oh, no, she is a doomsday prepper. <laughs> oh, she is. Oh, okay. Uh, what, what, what the hell is that? She, uh, life is all like the world's coming to an end type of thing. So I, I can give you the story. It takes a couple of minutes, but uh, it, yeah. it's worth telling. Um, so we'd gone on 12 dates over the course of about 10 weeks. Things were going pretty well. And she said she had a surprise for me. I thought, great, this is probably some 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 uh, bedroom action, some kind of uh, fantasy action there. Um, get to her house for this surprise day. And she jumps us in the car and we drive um about an hour out of where where I lived towards the Yarra Valley wine region, right? Um, and I thought, oh, okay, so the, the, the surprise day is going to be that we're going to the wineries. This is a great day. Not what I had in mind, but, you know, still yeah. a great day nonetheless. And then we drove past that and we drove significantly further and then I'm trying to figure out what, what is in this direction. And the only thing I can think of is like, oh, the Hillsville Animal Sanctuary, behold koalas, stuff like that. Okay, I guess we're going there. And then we drove past that. And by the end of the drive, by the time that I started to worry, we were about two and a half hours out of Melbourne. We ended up about three hours out of Melbourne in the middle of like bush nowhere and at like a, 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 a like small pull-up car park for a national park kind of woodlands area. And I genuinely, I thought, am I going to, am I going to end up in a shallow grave? And on the yeah, another exactly. story yeah. of, like, I was like, oh, this seems like the sort of landscape that a runner will discover me four weeks later, you know? Um, yeah. uh, and uh, she, I guess, saw how, how worried I was. And she said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. This is not, what uh it looks like i didn't realize how how this would come across yeah. what i what i wanted to show you is that i'm uh you know i i believe the world is ending and i've been preparing and i've got a little shelter um out here that i've been preparing for when the world ends that 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 uh that i've been planning to come to and i think this is going well and so if the world ends i'd like you to come with me to to the shelter um and so yeah she she was she was showing me the um what what i believe it was although i i don't know because it was like a, a a quite like poorly maintained kind of wooden hut it's kind of uh outhousey thing and i believe it may have once been like a tool shed for the the groundskeeper of the park and that she's just found it and claimed squatters' rights on it because it wasn't being used, but um, had put a padlock on the door and all that good stuff. Um, yeah, so that that's that's the doomsday. Well, it begs the question, Anthony. It took how long to figure this out with her? Well, it, it was twelve dates, ten weeks, and I wouldn't have figured it out if she didn't show me. <laughs> good God, yeah. Um, that, that's scary stuff. Well, uh, she's not alone. There are people like that, right? So, it, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. You survived. That's the main thing. Now, your website, your name of your website is great, and I wish I thought about that, Highbrow Drivel. 
right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> Tell everyone about that, what's on it, and why they should so, go. So, ah, so that's that's my podcast. So um, essentially, as, as, as we've discussed a bit, stand-up comedian, it's what I love doing, it's my passion, and obviously, like many people in the performing arts, it's been illegal for the last year. So at the end of last year, I was like, oh, what what, what can I do? And uh, I thought, you know, I've got a lot of funny friends. I think I'm quite funny. And there's a lot of smart people in the world who have cool things to say, but they're a bit boring. So what I'll do is I'll bring the two of them together, have an academic expert of some kind, politician, chat to me and my comedy mates, try and try and help them maybe jazz up their, their message a bit, keep, keep it a bit more simple, give, give me the uh, the dumbed-down version of the important things. And so, yeah, tiebrow because we're talking to academics, it's drivel because most of us don't know what we're saying. Yeah, even though it's probably uh, primarily drivel, there's probably an element of truth in there somewhere, right? Yeah. So which, which, yeah, which... I mean, the academics know what they're talking about. Sometimes I don't. The, the amount of times that I have to be like, yeah, no, that I know that sounds really smart, but what does that actually mean? Is um very very high. <laughs> well, it's good. I you know this day and age, or what we've been living through in the last twelve months or so, it, it, it's good. We've got to laugh at the end of the day. You know, many of us have good days and bad days. You know, with me, it's just the need to travel somewhere, and I'm working on that. And um, and then at least you can do what you're going to do. You'll be able to. Uh, you'll be invited to more stand-up shows, I'm sure, when things get more yeah. relaxed there. I think Britain now is uh, getting a bit more relaxed. And in, it's some, is there a date in June where everything opens up? Is that the t- target, right? The, the the plan is, I think, June 21st is is supposed to be all, all shackles off back to normal. There has started to be a couple of... Um, kind of festivals and and stuff that are cancelling post-June anyway. Um, I don't know if that's a demand issue. I don't know if that's expecting those plans to change. We'll see. But um, the the good thing here at the moment is because for the last year it's kind of been in, out, in, out, and even when you're out, you know you're probably going to end up back in, whereas this feels like, you know, every day we're a step closer to, to out as opposed to yo-yoing. So it's a good place to be. Yeah. With, with your sense of humour and your comedy, it would be appropriate at an event they have in Britain called the Olympic Games. Have you ever heard of them? Olympic. No. Ending it. Olymp- P-I-C-K at the end. It's usually yeah. centred around chipping Camden in the Cotswolds, and that's where they do these, these sports like tug-of-war, shin-kicking, ah, stuffing ferrets yeah. down the pants, and they have a... a <laughs> A, a, a Miss Olympic Games there as well, and it's parades through these these Cotswold villages, and it's just one big party. Yeah, people will drink a few beers, of course, but you you fit right into that type of. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna Google that the minute we get off this. Uh, oh, that's <laughs> that's definitely I'm checking it out. Yeah, excellent. Well, I'll tell you what, um, Anthony, I'm gonna let you go in a minute, but you that people can find you on YouTube, but the best way they can get more information about you or see some of your work is through that website. Yep, that's the one, highbrowdrivel.com. Yeah, catch me there. All right, excellent. Well, I wish you all the best in your future endeavours, standing up in front of people and making them laugh. It's important. We all need to uh, make each other laugh and uh, see more shows out there eventually. And 
I'm looking forward to more laughter. And uh, but thanks for what you do. And it was very nice talking with you. And yeah, I've had a lovely time. Thanks, Malcolm. Yeah, right. Well, best of luck in the old country over there. Hopefully, I want to get back <laughs> over to England probably in the next six months. I'm working on it, we'll just have to see. But until then, take care. Take care. See you, mate. See you, mate. Many thanks for joining me today. This is Malcolm Teasdale signing off. Before I do, please check out my website, malcolmjteasdale.com, for more information about my travels around the world. Okay, folks, talk to you later. Bye for now. Stay safe.